0: You will come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Hello, friends. I am super excited to bring you the wonderful Devorah Heitner today. Hi, Devorah. Hi, Christine. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Well, let me just give listeners a brief intro to you. You are a multi book author. You have the book Screenwise Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. And your new book coming out this fall is Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. And this includes wide ranging coverage from little kids to college graduates, from setting those initial boundaries and looking towards adulting and readiness skills. So congratulations, Devorah. The book is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I want to actually start by reading two quotes of yours that jumped out at me, and then I have a whole bunch of questions. So sit back and enjoy hearing your words reflected back to you. The first quote jumped out at me because it included a term called social labor that I hadn't really thought about or heard before. You write, Painstakingly curating a public online persona, competing for followers, and always angling for more likes while also engaging with other kids' posts is a complex kind of social labor that can be exhausting and produce anxiety for many kids. But it can be hard to opt out of these networks, especially if that is where your friends are. Belonging is very important to teens. Even if your teen is in a self-described outsider or weird kid friend group, make no mistake. Belonging is important to them, too. The second quote I want to read is, Growing up in public drains many kids' emotional energy. It can be stressful and exhausting. We need to make kids feel seen, understood, and validated, because when they go to social media for this, they come up empty-handed. There is never enough, not enough likes, followers, or novelty. No matter what, someone else will always have more but there are many things that parents and educators can do to help kids navigate this busy landscape. So on that note, Devorah, (laughs) I just thought those quotes were both so compelling and so indicative of the types of things we're going to talk about. And I want to jump in with a quick warm-up question. I'm just 100% curious about this in general and also as the parent of a middle schooler. So what would you say are the key social platforms that tweens and teens are plugged into now compared to adults? I kind of in my head, am imagining a little Venn diagram where there's a tiny slice of overlap, but I don't really know.
1: Well, I think Instagram is probably the big overlap for Mm -hmm. some kids and their parents. And again, you know, there's a lot of parents who are maybe more on the Facebook end of the meta, you know, and there are very few kids on on Facebook. In fact, they wanted to make my uh, book cover Facebook blue. (laughs) I was like, please don't do that. That is not a relevant social network for teenagers or anyone under, you know, none of the kids I talk to are using Facebook. But Discord is huge. TikTok is huge. And that's probably where there's more of a divide generationally. Like you don't see as many adults. I'm a big fan of like certain TikTok, you know, influencers, like for example, like Casey um, Davis, Struggle Care and some other folks. But I'm not a creator in a big way. I mean, I do have a TikTok. So I shouldn't like throw my TikTok under the bus. But I mean, I think I have like a few hundred followers on TikTok. And I'm not, you know, on there kind of doing discovery a lot. Like there's a few people's content I really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, our mutual friend Ned Johnson is one of them, but there's not a ton of like I'm not sitting around on TikTok like every day for my sort of scrolling, right? Mm-hmm. And Instagram is, I think, a big place of overlap. Discord, there's no overlap. Like, I don't know very many adults, especially non-gamer adults who are on Discord. I think if you're a gamer, that's a different scenario. Whereas almost all the teenagers I know are, and, and are talking, you know, I've been talking to, um, a little bit more boys, but definitely boys and girls are on it. And then Snapchat is big in some communities. I've talked to kids who are kind of past it or are not using it. I know some parents are, are hesitant. So I've seen fewer young, younger tweens on it. Cause it's, it's one that if parents are going to delay, a, a, an app, some, some of them would delay on Snapchat cause they're a little nervous about the disappearing messages. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, just group texting and, you know, WhatsApp and especially in more international communities, kids are using WhatsApp and other texting apps, or they're just using the native phone texting on their, on their device.
0: Right, right. That's super helpful. And the reason I was thinking of it is because many years ago, one of the pieces of advice I heard regarding kids in tech was, you know, when your kid is about to get their phone, like no kind of the things or even anywhere down the road, know the kinds of platforms they're on. So I was just I was just personally curious. But speaking of key platforms, I'm sure you see this all the time, but over the years, I've seen such trepidation over the leap towards getting a kid a device. It feels very doomsday. And I was wondering, and I just wanted to like warm us up with a one-on-one question here, but What is your best reassuring advice to a parent who is terrified of going down the road of getting their kid a phone and your advice as it regards to mentorship and guidance practices?
1: Well, we definitely want to spend the time before our kid gets a phone to mentor them and then imagine that we'll be continuing that mentorship and that many of their experiences, whether it's getting on a server with Roblox or texting on their classroom app, are going to prepare them. And those are also going to be good indicators for us. Like, where does my kid need help? Like, are they impulsive? Are they losing the thread? Are, you know, what, where are things getting tricky, even on these sort of pre-phone digital communication experiences. And that helps me know where I may need to lean in to support them or, you know, knowing if my kid is like super techie and maybe like a really good little hacker, maybe then like, just like putting screen time on their phone, isn't going to be enough. Maybe I need to like take that phone at night. There's just a lot of good ways we can learn about how our kids relate digitally before they're even having a personal device. And then uh, definitely prepare yourself for once they have a personal device, it's going to be some work to mentor them.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Roblox and gaming and stuff, because I feel like that was the precursor for my kid anyway. Um, And you don't think of it as a social platform, but they are like chit-chatting and doing all this stuff there. I barely understand it. (laughs) Okay. Well, related... To that doom question or the worry, I was wondering if you could explain something you write about in your book and you write about a fear based approach to parenting and technology. So, can you explain what it is, why it is problematic, and what parents and caregivers should work towards instead? I think it's totally
1: understandable why people have a fear based approach. I mean, we didn't grow up with this stuff and we're being told by everyone from the surgeon general to maybe our own pediatrician to maybe our kids' school. Even though our kids' school is probably giving them tech, they're also like sending home notes saying like, beware of the TikTok challenge, you know? And so there's just a lot of information coming out of us that can make us feel like, you know, what good parents do is keep their kids off of technology. And what bad parents do is give their kids technology. But also, by the way, here's the Remind app for your kids' soccer team. So like, good luck doing that. You know, I mean, it's it's a really impossible challenge. So I think a lot of parents feel like if I can just keep them off of it, or if I can just scare them out of doing the most harmful things that I'm the most scared of, but Fear-based tactics don't work very well to help kids be successful in relating in digital communities, which is our whole goal. Is so that they can, you know, get a job on LinkedIn or, you know, in that workplace Slack or send an email to their teacher or be in a group text with their friends and make some plans. So it's not just about the distant future; it's also about their present and helping them be successful and thrive in those communities. And we have to mentor them and help them figure that out. What do we do if someone doesn't get back to our text? You know, what do we do if someone says something really not nice on a, on a group text or on a social media comment. And if we just use fear tactics, we, we are not equipping kids to problem solve. Um, mm. So many of the situations that come up they're you know, they're just going to be afraid to tell us about anything because they are going to worry that they'll just lose access to tech. And they know that that's where their friends are. So for most kids, it feels pretty crucial to stay connected.
0: Yeah, well, I think you just brought up um, a little or a related piece to this is I think that part of this exploration for parents is also helping kids understand that if something happens, I mean, this is all so new and there's so many, I don't know, there's so many circumstances and situations and social things that could crop up that it's important to be able to be really open and say, you might make a mistake and let's like work through it and, you know, versus getting into sort of a punishing mindset. If one bad thing happens or a kid makes a misstep, you know, I think we have to learn to accept that some of this is out of our control. And then we've got to try to figure out how to help guide them to repair or not make mistakes. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. I think we need to help them move forward. And sometimes that might be taking a break from a certain app or reducing their number of contacts. But ideally, we're waiting in really slowly. You know, maybe they're not starting with a phone, with every single app. And they're also learning, you know, with a smaller group of contacts initially how to communicate. And then they're expanding on the the spaces where they're in contact with people by adding apps later, or they're, you know, growing their contact list. But ideally they're starting with a fairly small frame and starting with that small community is going to really help that if they, if they do make mistakes, it's going to be in a more forgiving window.
0: Mm -hmm, Forgiving window. I love that. All right, Devorah, we're going to take a quick break and then I have a lot of questions for you about sharing or share We'll be right back. As you know, I am all about micro improvements, and if you'd like to dedicate a little time each day to learn a language, I have a great solution for you. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that offers 10-minute language lessons designed to help you start speaking a new language in as little as 3 weeks. Materials are rooted in real-life situations, so you can learn important basics such as ordering food and asking for directions. Babbel offers personalized learning content, real-time feedback, tracking, and visualizations, and their speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. No matter what level you are looking for, casual, intense, or something in between, you can enjoy app lessons, podcasts, and live classes from the comfort of your home on your schedule. Here's a special limited time deal for Edit Your Life listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for Edit Your Life listeners at babbel.com slash edit. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash edit. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash edit. Rules and restrictions may apply. People often talk about the impact of things like stress, hormone fluctuations, and nutrition on skin. But did you know those things impact your hair, too? If you've been dealing with hair thinning, you are not alone, and Nutrafol is here to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. I appreciate that they offer formulas tailored to different life stages, such as postpartum and menopause, as well as different lifestyles, such as plant-based diets. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol Women's Hair Growth Supplement for six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, NutriFol is offering Edit Your Life listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code EDIT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. That's Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com and use promo code edit. That's Nutrafol.com using promo code edit. Friends, we are here with the wonderful Devorah Heitner, and I'm excited about these next questions. They're about sharing or lack of sharing or editing ones share. So my first question is, You know, I've seen stories, I've seen headlines about kids who are now grown, you know, maybe hitting 18 or whatever, applying to college, applying for their first jobs, and they are not happy about the extent to which their childhoods were shared online. So obviously we can't unwind the internet, but I'm curious if you have any repairing practices that you recommend that parents can take if they are in this window
1: so the, these are practices like your kid discovers you've shared every gymnastics routine, you know, and yeah, they didn't know that. maybe and even
0: more. I see people share a lot, like everything from, you know, developmental issues to uh, who knows what.
1: Right, and I here's think here's a video
0: of you having a tantrum at the mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like that.
1: I think, I mean, definitely those mea Couple moments are intense. I think if you can start to preview before your kid gets there and maybe take some things down, you know, at least look at your privacy settings. That wouldn't be a bad idea, but certainly if your kid is confronting you about a specific video story photo, I mean, I would immediately take it down, but also mm-hmm. what can you do to build trust? Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if you feel like this is accurate for you, that you were kind of naive about the way the internet works when social media started, that you didn't grow up with this stuff that, that you are now recognizing, you know, that, that you've. Uh, shared in ways that aren't appropriate or that you, you know, violated their boundaries and that you will go moving forward, recognize their boundaries and ask permission before you share and that you hope that they can forgive you and kind of move forward. I mean, I think it's a really tough thing. I mean, you know, sometimes the things that we share might seem really innocuous, like our kid in footie pajamas and it hurts their fourth grade street rap. You know, as like the cool kid because they're wearing pajamas in fourth grade and you wouldn't even think of that as embarrassing. It's not like an underwear picture or anything, but it's like, well, maybe that's not how I roll with my nine-year-old self at school. And you shared that with all my friends, parents and my friends saw it. Or maybe it's, you shared my birthday party and my friend, you know, my, my former friend or my not so close friend found out they weren't invited. Um, I mean, all of those can really cause our kids real headaches, so I think it's important to be sensitive to the ways our community overlaps with their community and yeah, I, I did interview some kids for the book who who had these moments of kind of discovery when they got on social media and saw their parents social sharing, so I think those are good conversations ideally to have in advance, but you can go and take things down, and you can also make sure to um Again, really promise to be very careful about it going forward. And I mean, I'm not allowed to share my kid at all. You'd look at my Instagram and be like, "Wait, she's a mom." <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of a bummer because, of course, he's like the best content I've got. Right? Like, like <laughs> nobody, nobody in my household is like as interesting or adorable as my kid. But um, I just have to make it work. Yeah. A lot of yeah. the pictures of me and my husband, you know, he took. So I'm like, oh, you know, by a by a 14 year old who prefers to remain keep a low profile. That, that's the photographer. So he's like if he's pictured at all, it's not, he's not in the picture, right? He's the creator.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. And I am definitely a little bit probably unusual in my tactics. I mean, my husband is in a profession that requires boundaries. He's a therapist. And so we made an agreement some time ago that I would not post uh, photos of their faces until they were of a legal slash reasonable age to consent. So it was so funny when my Older daughter turned 18 this past fall. I asked her consent. She was like, Oh mom, of course, that would be great. And it was so funny to introduce her to the world at age eighteen. It's so opposite of how people are doing things. But it felt really good. At first, I remember when we had that conversation initially, I thought, wow, this is really odd compared to everything else that everybody else I know is doing in this parent influencer space. And on the other hand, it was really good to stay, stay true to our values.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. And I think really good to kind of be very thoughtful, especially when our kids are 18, there's so much going on with the transition beyond high school and whatever their plans are, whether it's college or career gap years, other things, that's a very sensitive time for posting. So if anything, even a kid you've been posting all along, that's a good time to check in, but what a great time to introduce her since you're a public person. And that must be tricky, balancing his need for privacy and your you know, work as a social media expert. It's
0: it's tricky. We've done a lot of work on that. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about sharing, and I'm specifically thinking about the kinds of questions, because I know in your book you write about thinking about the why, like why why do I want to share this? So when it comes to sharing, I'm wondering if you have some sort of guiding questions or things to think about that you would recommend parents ask themselves before they share something online, whether that's related to their own personal things or, you know, because obviously, if a kid is old enough to see a parent's social media, that also p- impacts them, right? Even if the parent is not telling a story Absolutely. about the I Absolutely, mean, if
1: you share about your mental health or your marital troubles, you know, exactly. those are some good examples of things where you don't want your kid to find out that you're contemplating divorce from your social post. Exactly.
0: So I'm curious about... The different types of questions you recommend parents ask themselves or, you know, whether it's related to their own sharing or that about their kids.
2: I
1: think we need to ask ourselves our motivations. Like, what am I sharing this for? And if I'm sharing about my kids, you know, is it because I want to be recognized for all the labor and intensity I put into this? You know, and a lot of parenting is so invisible, especially mothering. And I think it's understandable that we want to be recognized. Like, guess what? Your kid won that ice hockey championship. Guess who drove that kid to ice hockey at 6 a.m. all year? You know, I mean, I think some of us want to be recognized for our labor, which is which is totally understandable. But I think sometimes we might need to find another way to do it. So I think the urge is, is, you know, very valid, mm-hmm. be recognized. And then sometimes we want we want support in the challenges. Sometimes you just want to show off and our kids are awesome and we want people to see that. And it, it's hard, especially in a community where other people are doing that. It almost feels like if you're not sharing your kids awesomeness, like what, you don't think they're awesome or you don't, th- you know. And it's really tricky because a lot of times people are sharing the highlight reel. And of course, they're not sharing their kids, you know, an older kid stint in rehab, for example, or mm-hmm. a younger kid who's, you know, where we're contemplating repeating a school year or other things are difficult, right? Or if we are sharing about that, that may also not be helpful to our kid. But the, the flip side is we only share the moments on the mountaintop or the championship game or the winning the National Geography Bee. We're kind of making it seem like. Every moment is awesome. And I think that doesn't accurately reflect most people's experience of parenting and family life, especially in the last few years, but in general. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really hard. I think the keeping it real posts are tough. I think the sort of boasty posts when our kids are doing awesome things are tough. And it it is honestly, it's a very tricky road. And and in terms of what we share about our own selves, I mean, I password protect my journal now because my son was borrowing my laptop and so on. and He wasn't snooping like it really was just kind of lying around. Um and he's also a couple of times run into emails that I wish he hadn't. And again, it's Mm -hmm. like it was just like open on my desktop and no longer is allowed to game on my laptop because my email is really not for him. And I think, you know, and that's not even a kid who's like overly curious, I would say. Like I think many parent kids would go further and and read their, you know, read their parents' email and social posts intentionally. Um, so we'd really have to think about all audiences, and it that's a huge contextual collapse problem that happens for so many of us when we're posting is I'm thinking of my five besties. It's like, well, maybe I should group text them or maybe I should text my sister or my cousin or call someone and have a voice to voice or see someone in person about the thing I'm worried about with my kid or my marriage or my finances and not put it out there even in a group. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 I hesitate to say this because I think the both parenting groups. And for example, like I'm in a paying for college group called paying for college one one and it's, Super useful as I gear up for that in four years for my kid, but you know, people disclose a lot about their debt and their personal lives. And I'm like, under their own names. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's that's a lot of information you yeah. just put out there. You know, <laughs> like you might get some information back that's supportive, but it's also it seems a little dicey. I just think we have to be really careful about our privacy and check in with our motivations and check in with what we notice about what other people share. Like when does someone else's post feel like it crosses the line to bragging? or when, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I know I mentioned Casey Davis, but I just saw a great video that she did about when to share a kid's diagnosis and like when it's relevant. And she really put a very good distinction between like when you're just kind of complaining about how hard it is versus when it's very relevant to the conversation. And I thought Mm -hmm. that was a really interesting place. I do think that's a place where, you you know, say your kid is newly diagnosed with dyslexia or something, or with another kind of medical issue, like say, You know, diabetes or asthma, it's really tricky. Like, if you're going to join an affinity community and your whole family is going to go, like, do the type one, you know, walk, for example, you know, maybe then everyone is going to know that a family member has diabetes. And maybe you're going to choose as a family that we're going to be very out there because we're going to be active in this community. And, you know, putting that out there is okay. But I would definitely check with an older kid. I wouldn't just do it. Mm -hmm. And for issues that someone might want to keep more private and disclose later at their discretion, I think it's really tricky to put that out there. So, Anyway, there's a there's a lot of of considerations.
0: Yeah, there there are. And I want to just point out, too, that I think that it can be I mean, maybe it's more complicated. I, I know you cover some of this in your book, but I think even adult to adult, there are some complications with sharing. And certainly even with that friend group thing, like, oh, if I post that, I'm here. I mean, I've had experiences where a good friend of mine would say, okay, we can't post any pictures of me actually being here because it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. And I so appreciate when the conversation is really direct like that.
1: Absolutely. I think that that's right. And yeah, especially, right. Like, I mean, for years, like I used to, you know, blow into town in places where I knew a lot of people. And sometimes I would only be able to like be there, you know, cause I'm working or speaking at a school and maybe I'd see like one cousin and I can't let the rest of the family know or other things. And, you definitely don't want to be posting that on Facebook and have someone find out you were in town. The flip side is sometimes I have done the really general thing and being like, I'm in New York. And then I get to see someone I didn't think of, but who reaches out to me and I'm like thrilled, you know? So there's, there's a benefit to it as well, but there is that, that real risk of like, and I've certainly had that feeling of like, wait, they came to Chicago and they didn't see me, but I try to kind of, you know, use positive self-talk and, and just understand that, I understand, okay, like this friend who's coming through town had three days. They have a ton of family here. Like maybe I, I understand where I might not make their like top six list in the time that they had and that's okay. Um, but it, I think we all have to recognize that our kids are having that feeling constantly if they're on Snapchat maps, for example, they're seeing their friends literally go out every night. I mean, I, I had a kid show me oh last Saturday night. Oh my God. Saturday that's a thing. I didn't Snapchat even know that was maps. a thing. Oh my God. And they're like, <laughs> oh, look, I have a friend who's on vacation. You can see them in Chile and like all this stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can see all of your friends. And oh like, my God. This is a younger teen. That's like a 14 or 15 year old, like 90% of his friends were home. It was like nine 30 on a Saturday night. And it was his thing with his parents. So most of his friends were like at their house, you know, but a few of them were like out. And I was like, oh my gosh, if any of them had been out together, how would this kid feel?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, whole new world. Uh, well, Violet is not on Snapchat, so there there's something. But wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, Snapchat is really tricky that way. I find that even more tricky than Snapchat streaks, which was a big trend for a long time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that was a lot of work for people to keep up. So more of that social labor you were bringing up, but you know, keeping up a 24-hour volley of communication, where if you drop it, if 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 you don't ping somebody back within 24 hours, they lose the streak. But but Snapchat Maps, I think
0: cause even more emotional
1: stress. Oh my gosh. Kids don't want to get out of them because they'll be like, oh, well then I'm invisible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, my, my mind is spinning. This is incredible. Well, I have another question about boundaries. I mean, which I, I love boundaries and (laughs) I also live in the real world where there are a lot of other people. So whether it's related to when kids first get a phone or how they use platforms or whatever, how do you help kids set boundaries and stay aligned with values in the face of the ever present comment? But my friend is doing X, Y, or Z.
1: How do we yeah, do that? I think, <laughs> I think that's really hard. So like a boundary, for example, like I can't be on the phone after nine or 10 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, for younger kids, if they can use you as an excuse, because sometimes it is really a relief, you know, like your sixth grader actually really wants to unplug and get their sleep or they really want to focus and they really want to go build some Legos or go outside and play, but they feel like they have to be on the group text. So like throwing you under the bus a little bit can actually be a relief for those younger tweens mm-hmm. for older kids. No, but no eighth grader or 10th grader is going to want to say like, my mom is you know, making me get off the phone, even if it's true. So I think they need their own boundaries, but it can be like, oh, I'm you know, jamming to get ready for this swim meet. I got to go. Or, you know, or, you know, even in eighth grade, you could still say like, oh, I have to put my phone away at night or I'll lose my privileges. But as kids get older, I think they're going to find that they want other, you know, sort of stories to tell and, and to be able to set a consistent boundary with friends and say, Hey, like, you know, I got to get my beauty sleep or, you know, I, you know, I have to get up so early for practice before school, just reminding their friends, like they can't check at night. And, and I, I have to say, like, if you pick one battle with your kids on boundaries that they set with peers, but that you also set with them, I would say preserving some sanctity of sleep has so many physical and mental health benefits that if literally, if you do nothing else to regulate your kid's screen time, but make sure they unplug at night, you're already kind of ahead of a lot of folks. And I think your Mm -hmm. kids are going to really benefit because what I see is nothing good happens at night. Like that's when the disinhibited behavior leads to nastiness, you know, and there's a lot of mental health issues that can come from using phones, you know, all night long.
0: Well, I love that tip because I'm a huge fan of sleep and yes, I, I, I have a, a no phones in the bedroom rule too, so I'm I'm all over that. <laughs> That's okay. great. Yeah. Devorah, we have a couple more questions to ask you. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Especially in this digital age, since we're well beyond handwritten journals and letters to convey history, the preservation of stories is so important, especially from the moms and mom figures in our lives. And if you've been looking for a way to collect those stories, but aren't sure how to start, I have a recommendation for you. StoryWorth makes it easy. Every week, they email a loved one of your choosing a question prompt that you pick. For example, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? And what aspects of having children didn't turn out the way you expected? Your loved one responds to that email with a story of any length. You will receive copies of these emails as they are submitted. And after one year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and any photos provided into a keepsake book. A friend recently shared how moving it was that her mom gifted copies of her StoryWorth album to immediate family members, a genius idea for expanding the preservation and sharing of those stories to people in different households and generations. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com edit. That's storyworth.com slash edit to save $10 on your first purchase. Did you know that hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin, but decreases gradually as we age, leading to thinner, drier skin? If you're looking for support hydrating your skin from the inside out, check out one of the tools in my hydration arsenal, Rituals Hyacera, which I take every morning. Hello, friends. We are back with the wonderful Devora Heitner. And I have a school related question for you, Devora. Perfect timing with your book launch. You might be shocked to hear that I have never accessed the school portal in raising one kid through high school and now another on the way to seventh grade. That said, while I'm generally not into the portal, I also realize that I have the benefit of having kids who have done their homework and are pretty self motivated in terms of staying on top of their work. So I completely understand that situation. So I was curious if you can share as we're all setting habits and trying to do our best in the new school year, can you share your perspective on the school portal and how to be respectful while being supportive?
1: So I love your approach. And I think for many kids, that is probably a great approach is just, you know, literally lose the password and just ignore it. I will say on, you know, we get a lot of like debate parents meeting or, you know, cross country meet information on the same app. So it's very hard to completely tune out for us because like, I do want to know about the cross country meet. I just don't want to see my kids quiz grades every five minutes. So I'm trying to like tweak the settings and I, you know, I'm in the transition moment. Our family, my, I have one kid and he's going from middle school to high school now. So we're, we're like going from like one, you know, one set of like wacky school tech to another. So I'll know more in a few weeks, but hopefully I can tweak it so I can go to the parents meeting about debate and not the, you know, get the quiz updates on my phone. Otherwise I, the, the thing I would first do is move it to my computer or move it to a less frequently checked device because mm-hmm. I don't want to be seeing it all the time on the device that I have with me at all times. Like I don't need to be like at the gym or in the waiting room of my therapist's office and get, you know, my kid's quiz grade, right? Like that's not helpful. And I think for a lot of parents, this information is too much. It comes in when we're at work or when we can't do anything about it. And sometimes we know it before our kids, which is incredibly pernicious and problematic because we're like Mm. pouncing on our kids. Either the worst is during the school day where teachers tell me kids will get texts from their parents. Why did you get a C on this test? And they literally didn't even know they got a C on the test because they're in another class and their parent is distracting them from their other class, letting them know that's like the worst case scenario. But the second worst, which is still quite bad is pouncing on them the minute they walk in the door
0: Mm.
1: again before they knew. So imagine if your spouse did this, like imagine if your spouse was like, I heard your client meeting at 11 a.m. didn't go well when you walked in the door at five. Like, can Mm -hmm. you imagine how Mm -hmm. that would feel? Like you're just like coming off the workday and our kids come in from middle school and high school, like so exhausted Mm -hmm. and to just be hit with this like information or question or interrogation really. So I think it's, it's too much information. It really turns the teacher parent relationship and the student teacher and student parent relationship, it makes that whole triangle kind of very problematic and, and, and very, um, what's the word I want? It's, it's like, it, it, it turns, it, it turns the teacher relationship into something that's only about grades mm. and very transactional. And that's, that's a problem. It's not about learning. It's not about the relationship. And we want our kids to build relationships with their teachers that are about learning and go far beyond this sort of transactional, what do I need to do to up my grade from 87 to 91 so I can get the A? Right. Um, and getting that constant flow of updates of data really undermines kids' ability to do that. So an- another thing I would do is have kids take it off their own phone, especially if you have an overchecker, Because some kids are maybe under-checkers and aren't looking at their assignments or have no idea how they're doing, but we need to help those kids learn better strategies for knowing how they're doing in class, not just getting the grades. Um, but for kids who are overcheckers, it be- can become habitual the way scrolling Instagram becomes habitual, where you're just on your phone and you just check your grades randomly. And that's actually not a great practice. And kids have told me they really wreck their sleep. Like they'll do that last thing before bed. It's like check their GPA, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Can you imagine that's I cannot.
1: It's not a good idea.
0: <laughs> well, Devore, I really appreciate that you laid down that example about from the adult perspective of, you know, coming, having somebody come home and call you on a meeting or something that went terribly wrong, because I think, well, I'm always trying to encourage people towards perspective taking. And I think that's a really great example for a parent to put you know themselves in the shoes of their kid that they might be doing that action towards. So thank you. I think that's really helpful and I felt myself gasp a little at the prospect of that. So I think that's that's really excellent. I am curious and I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, but it just came to me and I wanted <laughs> I wanted to ask. I'm curious, you know, between the two launches of your books, obviously so much has changed and is there anything that has surprised you about Parenting and tech and kids, or anything that you're feeling like we should kind of keep our eye on as things continue to evolve in the future? Any top concerns that are on your mind as an expert in this realm?
1: Yeah, I mean, I am, I'm really excited about the ways kids are sharing about themselves and the way they're changing the culture. And I really hope that adults can support them and not kind of like weaponize that data against them. And I'm really concerned actually about the level of surveillance in school and in society about our kids. And Mm -hmm. I, I, and the amount of data that tech companies, you know, have about all of us. And I just, I, I'm curious to see where that is all going and the sort of what we give up in privacy, will it be worth it? And in the sort of personalized recommendations for tech that we all get, or, you know, in Spotify, knowing what kind of music I like, like, is that, is that discovery and the sort of you know, AI driven discovery, is it worth all the compromised privacy? And I think we're going to know in the next five to 10 years. And I'll be interested to see if people will sort of push back. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm watching Battlestar Galactica, which is, you know, 20 years old or whatever with my kid now. And he's like networked computers. They're so scared of networked computers because the Cylons, you know, the, the, the mean robots will take over. And it's like, yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. kind of there, like (laughs) robots
1: may be taking over. It's an interesting time to rewatch that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm so sorry, but you just made me think of something else where I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't plan on a question for this, but I will put you on the spot for one last other unexpected question before we get to your next edit. And that is, what would be your quick, helpful language for a parent who learns that their kid has used AI to phone in or dial in, phone in, (laughs) whatever it is, Mm -hmm. to basically do an assignment for them? How do you Approach that with compassion and a like learning slash growth mindset. Even if you're really freaked out,
1: from from a teacher perspective, I would want them. I mean, it's tricky because you know, I think parents have a lot of incentives not to encourage their kid to come clean, depending on like what the consequence is going to be at school. Um, I think the honest thing to do would be to disclose to the teacher and maybe redo. But I also think the teachers need to be rethinking their assignments, which is not Mm -hmm. really an answer to your question because it shouldn't be so easy to AI something. And a lot of the writing that we're having kids do maybe should be in class or teachers should be using open AI. And they are in many cases doing really creative things with open AI and encouraging kids to try it. And then reading what they get and fixing it and being like, yeah, this isn't that good, or this has misinformation embedded in it, or this is very cliched. Like, how can I fix this? I think the questions about intellectual property and like, what counts as doing your own work? Um, I mean, that's not my, my core expertise, but I've talked to a lot of people who, for example, I have a a good friend who teaches reading and literacy at Stanford. So she's teaching teachers who will be like, you know, your kid's ELA teacher in high school. And I think those folks are leaders in figuring out like what can happen and what, how should teachers redesign their assignments so that kids aren't just regurgitating from AI. Mm -hmm. Cause if you can do that, then that maybe wasn't such a good assignment. Yeah. That's right. a but great it is perspective. A, it is a different yeah. level than, you know, back in the day when I would catch kids cheating because I used to teach in higher ed and I would catch kids cheating using like Wikipedia, <laughs> using, you know, Turnitin yep. and other software. And I think we're kind of past that. It's not going to be quite as easy. Although when you read a really super AI paper, like honestly, I can even tell like on LinkedIn, what my, you know, what, who's, who's writing to me as a robot, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, getting all this like LinkedIn outreach with the book mm-hmm. launch and everybody's like, I'm like, that sounds like a robot wrote that.
0: Um, right. I'm so old school. I still love just, I still just write. I've never even tried AI. I probably should just to know what's out there, but um, yeah, thank you for uh, answering that question. Cause I think that will continue to be an issue. And I, I love the idea of, you know, maybe it will help people get more creative in, in what they produce and how they fashion assignments and everything else. Wow. Okay. Well, Devorah, at the end of each show, I ask my guest to share something called your next edit. I don't remember know if you remember this from when you were last on the show, but it's a super actionable tip that listeners can consider doing right away after they finish listening. Perhaps it has something to do with adjusting privacy settings. I don't know. It's up to you. But in the context of our conversation, I would love for you to share what your next edit is for our listeners. That's a great
1: question. I mean, I have really had a lot of ex- success with Just adjusting what I can see on my phone by hiding apps or getting things off my home screen and sometimes going to grayscale as well to make my phone a little bit less compelling so I'm less distracted by it. So those are some of the hacks that I really like. And I I do think looking at your privacy settings and taking a look at your contacts and making sure you periodically schedule a contact audit making sure the contacts Ooh. in your phone makes sense to you. Yeah. You know, I just, you know, we've moved communities a few times. I'm like, oh, I probably don't need some of these contacts that are like moms and dads from three schools ago. If my kid isn't still friends with their kid um, or whatever, we don't remember, I don't remember who this person is. So just making sure that, you know, or follower audits. I mean, I think we're all going through, a, especially if you're still hanging on in Twitter land, <laughs> I think we're all, you know, kind of going through some stuff there, but even on other apps, you know, making sure, are, are, you know, do I need to prune my connections in any way? And would that enhance my experience?
0: Mm, I love that. I'm going to do a contact audit after we finish recording. I'm inspired. I, I need to clean some stuff up. <laughs> it's so good because then you can actually find the people you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Devorah, thank you so much for joining me today. I know it's going to be a flurry around book launch, but I will certainly link up both of your books, but This book that's coming out, especially, I think is going to be so useful to so many parents. And it's just loaded with stories and tips and so many good things to think about. So thank you for writing it and doing all that work to to put together something comprehensive and helpful for parents. I think it it means a lot.
1: Thank you. I'm really grateful to all the teenagers and parents and educators who spoke to me for the book. I really learned so much from them and I hope that their
0: voices come through. Wonderful. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay, friends, you'll find the show notes for this episode, including links to resources and related episodes at edityourlifeshow.com. As ever, I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. Come say hello on Instagram or Facebook at edityourlifeshow or send an email to edityourlifeshow at gmail.com. I would also be grateful if you would drop Edit Your Life, a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a pod-loving friend about the show. Thanks for listening.
2: Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly.